You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for high-quality whole food supplements, check out AncestralElements.com, navigate to the Supplements tab, and you'll find liver and colostrum, as well as a bear clover tincture that's the only one on the market. I worked with UC Davis to get it lab tested. It's high in quercetin and other phytochemistry that provide antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. Sweetened with a hint of maple syrup, lemon peel, and ginger, it's 100% organic and wild-crafted, and all the lab tests are also available upon request. If you're looking to increase your antioxidant activity and fight inflammation, check out the Bear Clover Tincture. Welcome back to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast, episode 28, Sports Nutrition, Fascia, the system you didn't know you had. On this episode, we are going to take a deep dive into the fascial system. We're going to talk about what that means for movement and exercise, and we're also going to talk about nutrition and how that affects not only the function of fascia, but the repairing mechanisms of the underlying cellular structures of fascia. This episode is going to get a little bit um, technical and a bit nerdy. It's going to be a little bit of a diversion of what I've done in the past. We're going to focus a lot just on basically two systems, the musculature system and the fascial system, and how they kind of coincide and work together. And we're going to talk about the similarities and the differences between the two, because they are very, very different systems that happen to be in sync and work together. So fascia, when I talk about fascia, I hope most of you at this point know what that is. But if you don't, fascia is essentially the connective tissue. It's like the glue that holds your body together, quite literally, holds everything together, even your skeleton. Because when you look at a skeleton, like a fake version of a skeleton in a classroom setting or wherever it may be, you'll notice that it is pieced together by nuts and bolts, right? In this case, this would be your connective tissue. That's what it does. It connects your body and your systems of bodies together internally. If you think of fascia like an orange, there are essentially two layers of fascia. There's what's called your superficial fascia and your deep fascia. So on an orange, the orange peel, that the really thick peel with the, with the pith on it, that would be like your superficial fascia. When you peel an orange and you separate it into halves, the skin around the segments of the orange would be like your deep fascia, okay? So superficial fascia sits right underneath your skin. It's like a thick canvas, basically, that covers from your brain to your feet. Now, your deep fascia is underneath, internally, inside your muscles, inside even some bone structures that provide rigidity and literal structure to your musculature and to the bones of your body. And that also runs from your brain to your feet in these continual lines or planes that we'll discuss later on. And they have a huge, huge impact on the way things move internally in your body. And if you're already questioning me on, you thought that tendons and ligaments held muscles to bones and things of that nature. They do. And that's part of the fascial system at large. So tendons, ligaments, 
they are the same cellularly as the tissue that's covering on top of your muscles, right underneath the skin. They're all in a category called fibroblast tissue. And the superficial fascia and the deep fascia are linked together. So the superficial fascia kind of roots down into the deep fascia. It's one system, it's one connected kind of mass that sits on top and inside, like I said, your muscles and even to some extent your bones. You could also think of it like a webbing or a net that is kind of interlaced and interconnected and weaves in and out of every single tissue and organ of your body. Because that's the other thing. There's fascia encapsulating all of your organs as well to provide them structure. Because your bones are floating in your body. Does that make sense? It's not like they're concreted down into your body. The two lower ribs are a great example of this. So there are what is called false ribs or floating ribs, your 11th and 12th rib. They aren't connected to your sternum. They're floating there. And then if you extrapolate that out, it's like, okay, well, what's the rib cage connected to? Well, the rib cage is connected to your spine. It's like, okay, well, what is the spine connected to? Well, the spine is connected to your tailbone, to your pelvis, and coccyx. And it's also connected to your brainstem. But it's like, okay, well, that's running through the center of our body, right? It forms the backbone, but it's only connected in kind of two places. And then you have cross bracing, essentially, that form the rib cage around it. So that whole structural component of your body is suspended within your body. It's connected with connective tissue that holds it all in place. That's your anchor point that holds it all in place. And so when it comes to floating bones, they are only held in with fascia. There's no ligament or tendon holding them to muscle or bone. You have floating bones in your feet as well, in your hands, and it's literally, they're just held in place by the fascia layer, by the connective tissue. That's what connective tissue does by definition. So that's why lower ribs break so easily upon impact or the little bones in your feet. You see that in runners a lot where the floating bones of the foot will either become misplaced and they'll, you'll get stress fractures in them or a lot of times they won't even break, they'll bend. And a lot of times that causes bone death. You get bone inflammation and the bone ends up dying and then you're in a whole world of trouble. I've seen that a ton, unfortunately. It's very, very common. And most of the time, it goes undiagnosed for months or years. Um, very, very, unfortunately, all too common. Okay, but I don't want to get too off into the weeds on that one. So fascia, it has a tensile strength of 4,200 pounds, meaning the stretch that it can take is about 4,200 pounds before it breaks. That tensile strength is stronger than steel, meaning it can really take a huge load end-to-end -end stretching before it starts to break. Now, obviously, within your biological system, there's going to be at no point in your life where your whole fascial system is stretched to that degree. I mean, it's just, it's not possible because your bones would snap and things would literally come apart if you were stretched like that. But in a laboratory setting, that seems to be roughly the amount that a fascial 
layer can take, and a fascial layer excluding joints, tendons, ligaments. And if you've never heard of the fascial system, or you know just a vague that there's fascia in your body, I mean, it's not because you're really missing something. This is something that isn't talked about, really, unless you're in the body working kind of world and or doing surgeries or something like that. Really, the fascia system, you won't see it in anatomy books because they didn't realize it was a full integrated system until just a couple of decades ago, really about 15 years ago. They started actually looking at it. They just cut through it to get to the musculature because they thought that the bulk of the physiology and things going on in your body was in the musculature. And, you know, the fascia was just this kind of dead, rigid tissue that, you know, provided structure, but it was unimportant to the overall system of your body, which is now increasingly clear that information is not valid whatsoever. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty details of this. But just know that this is a full integrated system and it integrates with every other system in your body. Like I said, it integrates with your organs. It integrates with your blood. It integrates with your musculature, your skeleton, your lymphatic system, your endocrine system, every single system. And it's got a reciprocal relationship with every single system, meaning there's feedback both ways at all points. I have been intimately working with the fascia layer for basically the last decade or a little more. Um, it's where I've done most of my body working kind of around and in. I also teach nationally fascial integration techniques for body workers. Um, so, I mean, I'm very acutely familiar with the way fascia functions, not only internally, but signs of it when there's pathology. And really, that's about the only time that people start paying attention to the fascial layer and to the system at large is when there is pretty big injury or impingement within the musculature and within the fascia. And that's about the only time you can really catch people's attention with this type of thing, which it would be a lot better if people knew how to keep it healthy and knew what it was before going in, especially when embarking on exercise and movement practices. So I will do my very best to convey that information here, and hopefully you gain a little bit more insight on what this is all about and why it actually matters. Okay, I want to go through a couple of pathologies that routinely pop up in people's lives so you can start to understand how connected this layer is with the musculature and with the skeleton in particular. So probably the most common fascial injury that people have is in the shoulders, and it results as a frozen shoulder. So if you've ever had a frozen shoulder or known somebody who's had a frozen shoulder, the musculature literally gets so impacted with fascia, it impedes the sliding movement internally of ligaments and tendons, and that starts to pull and shorten the skeleton to where you can't get your arm above your head, let's say. I mean, and the shoulder is one of the most complex joints in the body. Yes, it's a ball and socket joint. It seems somewhat simple, you know, it rotates around, whoop-de-doo, but if you start looking at the underlying physiology and anatomy of a shoulder girdle, you'll start realizing you have your latissimus dorsi that's starting in the low back and rotating on itself. It's the only muscle in the body that rotates on itself. It literally corkscrews after it hooks in by your armpit. It corkscrews through the rib cage. 
that anchors things down through the ribs. So then it starts to play on your rib cage and your ribs can get tightened together. They get kind of stacked up in a way that starts impeding the movement above your head. And then you have all the deep muscles of the shoulder too. You have your teres minor, your teres major. You have the rhomboids, minor and major. You have the infraspinatus and the spinatus. You have the deltoid. You have the upper trap. All of those rotator cuff muscles, quote-unquote, which i it's such an overused term, and it makes it seem like there's just one single mechanism controlling the rotation of your shoulder, and that it's just not true at all. So what I'm saying is there is an intricate mechanical type process and physiological type process that's going on in a seemingly simple movement of rotating your shoulder or lifting your arm above your head. So physiologically, what's going on internally when your shoulder gets that stuck? Typically, it's the result of an injury that hasn't been rehabbed or even dealt with. So if you were to look at pretty much everybody's shoulder cuff, right? When people say, oh, I have a torn rotator cuff, it's like, well, you know, so does everybody else, right? That's not a big deal. That just means you have some tearing in your musculature. I mean, it can be a big deal depending on how torn up it is. But saying that you have some rotator cuff tears, that's par for the course. I mean, if you've lifted anything substantially heavy in your life, then you're going to have some muscle tearing. I mean, that's all a rotator cuff is. It's musculature. It's not some highly specialized piece of tissue. It's just musculature that's hooked together to help you rotate your arm around. It's not very complicated, but you throw this kind of weird rotator cuff term on it and people don't even know what that actually is. People don't even know that's you're they're talking about muscles, which is really the biggest issue. I mean, that's where language comes into play when you're talking about the body. Because if you throw some blanket term like that and people just hear it, they will just assume that it's some individual tissue because that's the way people tend to think about the body. They tend to think about things on a very individual basis and how they're not interconnected. People don't like to think of the body as an interconnected, again, I hate to use the language holistic, but as a holistic entity where every system is playing on every other system. And so the waters get muddied very quickly when you don't specify in the language that you use. Next time you hear somebody complain of a torn rotator cuff, ask them what muscles are torn. I guarantee they would have no idea. They would just say, oh, well, it's the rotator cuff. I mean, I've heard that thousands and thousands of times. So did you tear up all seven muscles that make up the rotator cuff? Would be a good follow-up question. Um, and guaranteed they wouldn't know because they don't know what muscles are making up the rotator cuff. They don't even know what a rotator cuff actually is. So again, the language used to specify these things is very, very important. And typically it's language that doctors don't have time to sit down and explain. So you go in for an MRI, you know, they say you've got a torn rotator cuff and they give you some steroids. They might shoot a little cortisone in there, give you a little muscle relaxer and kind of send you packing. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll get six weeks of PT follow-up from that that you may or may not do. And then, you know, you go years down the road and eventually things get so seized up that you find yourself not being able to lift your arm up above your head. 
And then somebody like me has you on the table and either they're going to know what to do on how to correct it or they're going to be too scared to even try to correct it. And that's typically where the body working world kind of splits itself. Okay, so I want to continue with this example of a frozen shoulder because it can be fairly easy to picture. You have some tears in the musculature. What the fascia does is it ever slowly starts to fill in those tears with fascia and with scar tissue internally. Or a better way to think about it, the way I like to explain it to people, is it's like an internal scab. So you get a cut, right? Your skin eventually will form a platelet plug. It'll close the skin off and it'll form a scab. Well, your muscles internally do a very similar thing. It eventually will kind of plug itself up. That's what bruising is, okay? And then, depending on the tissue, it will a lot of times form kind of a scar tissue, and that would be like a residual kind of scab or leftover scar that you might get on your skin. It's a very similar internal mechanism. I mean, it's not 100% the same, but you can think of it kind of like that. What that does, since fascia, again, has a tensile strength of 4,200 pounds, then it starts to basically form an internal splint, for lack of a better term. And if you try to move through that without releasing the tissue and you lift something heavy, then you're going to have such a load on that that the fascia starts to tear a little bit. Just tiny micro tears, and you get tiny micro tears in the musculature too. And then it has to rebuild and remodel. And you do that again and again and again, and things start to seize up. And then blood flow starts to get restricted because things are so shortened in the tissue and in the fascia layer that blood flow like water down a stream has to find the path of least resistance. And it's not going to try to blast its way through really impacted tissue. That's not what blood does. And so without proper blood supply, then the nervous system has to gradually impede its response through there because it's too much energy for the nervous system to try to put out. When you have a lack of proper blood supply in the tissue and the tissue is gradually becoming more and more seized up. Okay, so that's generally the kind of physiological timeline that a frozen shoulder goes on. There are techniques to release that. There are myofascial techniques to get all that released. Gua sha is probably the best at releasing a shoulder girdle because you can get into tight, deep areas rather than cupping where you're going to be working on more of a large scale with cups, but you're not going to be able to get in quite as deep. I always do a combination of cupping and gua sha work. I won't get into particulars for body working because it's really not important for this podcast. But I also want to talk about nutrition and how you can help the fascia layer out and connective tissue layer out through nutrition and through diet. This particularly becomes important when you're doing a lot of exercise and you end up doing a lot of internal damage, tissue damage, musculature and fascia. Because that's what exercise is. You're micro-tearing the tissue so it can 
rebuild itself with these fibroblasts. That's what those cells are. So muscle cells rebuild themselves. Connective tissue rebuilds themselves eventually. So on a musculature level, the timeline for complete cellular turnover, meaning complete repair of some damaged muscle, is 90 days. So if you've ever heard of the workout program P90X, that's why it's 90 days. The inventor of that obviously knew kind of the life cycle that a muscle cell would go through to repair itself. And so if you do 90 days of strength training, then you'll have complete cellular turnover of all of the musculature that you've been working on. And then your body will be well kind of responded and have had time to kind of integrate all the changes that have been happening. And if anybody listening has kind of embarked on a new strength training routine or exercise routine, you'll know what I'm talking about. You kind of get to that three month mark and you start feeling pretty good. The soreness is down, like, right? The, you feel stronger, right? You might have built up a little bulk in the musculature. You know, it's pretty, um, you can build a lot of mus- muscle within, you know, three months, within 90 days. Now, what happens after that, that's usually right after that three-month mark is typically when people start getting injured. And that's honestly down, that's just down to not really understanding the physiology and the physiology of the connective tissue of the fascia layer. Because fascia turnover, full cellular fascia turnover, is 180 days. So it's double that of your muscles. So you can essentially build up almost twice the amount of musculature in three months, but have the same degree of connective tissue, meaning the load that is going to be then placed on your fascia is going to be double to what your normal physiology is. And that's not good. And that's when things start to tear. That's when ligaments snap and tendons snap. Things like bicep tendons or ACLs, they'll snap. It's very rare that you see major tearing in the middle of a muscle. Think about hamstring tears. You rarely see a huge, significant tear in the middle of the hamstring. It typically tears either at the knee or into the glute where there's connective tissue. That's where your fascia attaches it all. You typically tear at attachments, bicep tendons, same thing. You rarely tear the middle of your bicep up. It's typically at the deltoid, at the shoulder, or at the elbow. So with strength training, and where you're putting a lot of load on your muscles, it's important not to push it too hard after that three-month mark. You should want to almost plateau a little bit and let your fascia catch up, because it's going to save you from future injury a lot more. And believe me, I've personally torn many things up in my body doing bodybuilding, not knowing these basic physiological concepts. And trainers don't know these concepts. It's very rare that a personal trainer will understand just this basic concept. Some of them do, if they're good. But the majority of them, unfortunately, don't. It's just not in their wheelhouse. As you age your fascia density increases. When you're young, you have this nice kind of linear, stratified-looking fascia layer. It's all lined up really nicely. You can tell that things would kind of move through there very easily and very unrestricted. 
if you look at it on a microscopic level. There are these kind of channels and little pathways that just seem to kind of cut through the tissue of the fascia layer that form grooves, basically, that just allow things to to scoot through there very seamlessly. As you age, that stuff gets crisscrossed. Fascia gets more rigid, more kind of wound together in these um, crisscrossing type patterns that the cells take. And that's for rigidity because you start to lose muscle mass and that keeps and holds things in place. So if you're somebody that is extremely skinny with virtually no muscle mass on you at all, then the load that is placed on your fascia is an extreme amount. It's vastly inproportionate to the musculature that you have. And that often results in tearing because there's a load on the fascia layer. If you think of loads being on your body, it'll help you kind of contextualize what I'm saying. So if an area is kind of loaded up, you need to either A, unwind it somehow, or B, pack on more musculature or do some light fascia stretching to relieve that load. Now, there's many different routes you can take, and you may have to take a bunch of different ones to kind of get things back in homeostatic balance. But it just depends on your body, and it depends what you have going on. You can overstretch fascia too. You see this in a lot of extreme yoga and people that just constantly overstretch. Gymnasts or contortionists is another group of people that are way, way overstretched. And when that happens, things also tear very easily because, again, the musculature is overstretched and there's going to be a continual physiological process in your body of your muscle cells and fascia trying to continually fill in very laxed muscles because that's what happens. Under a lot of tightness, your muscles and connective tissue will kill cells off to create space. Under extreme relaxation, then your muscles and fascia will build in more cells to try to remodel and fill in the gaps and the holes in the tissue. And so if you overstretch your body, if you overstretch your musculature, if you overstretch your fascia, then a lot of times the, the skeleton won't stay in alignment. You'll get things like hip displacement. You see that a lot. A lot of times knees will blow out because there isn't enough rigidity through the, the quads and through the calves to keep the patella and ligaments in place. And so they'll be out of place. And when you walk or run, there'll be a load that isn't evenly displaced across that plane and things will start to rip and tear. So there is a fine balance. You're walking kind of a razor's edge between flexibility and rigidity, and you need both. You have to have both. Otherwise, things will break down. I want to pivot into nutritional care for your connective tissue and fascia. Interestingly enough, intermittent fasting increases growth factor, specifically growth factor 21 that repairs fibroblast cells. So it repairs connective tissue. If you've ever seen a dog tear a tendon or a ligament, 
a lot of times they won't eat very much food. They'll, they'll fast essentially for a couple of weeks as that's healing up if they didn't have a surgery on it because it actually increases the cellular response to the tissue and it actually rebuilds it and remodels it faster than if they were constantly eating. And that's down to the liver releasing this growth hormone, 21, that specifically works on the fibroblast cells. This recently happened with my parents' dog, actually. He tore what would be his ACL, essentially, and he didn't eat for really like a couple weeks very much. I mean, he would eat a little bit, but he essentially fasted and lost a lot of weight. And that's honestly just an instinctive move to repair that tissue. And now he's using his back leg again. So instinctively, mammals, animals will do this. Um, you'll, you'll see it in especially dogs, um, maybe some cats, but Cats are so flexible and have kind of hollowed out bones anyway, so they're not typically tearing ligaments as much as canines would. So anyway, intermittent fasting is a great way to kind of start that process. It will put you into ketosis, and ketoacidosis is actually a good state to be in when you want ramped up initial healing. That's why people kind of get on the keto diet in the first place responds to your liver in a very certain way because again your liver is a storage tank for your blood and it your liver starts releasing different enzymes and different growth hormones that assist in fat oxidation and kind of breaking down the lipids the fats in your body and that further releases growth hormone and so it all kind of feeds into one another so being in ketoacidosis is actually a good state to be in if you're looking for kind of jumpstart initial healing. That's typically why you don't have an appetite when you're sick as well. Now, I want to be clear that you don't want to calorie restrict when you're intermittent fasting. Because if you start to calorie restrict, then you're going to get nutrient deficiencies. And that's not going to aid in your remodeling of the fibroblasts. So if you're going to do 12, 16 hours, just make sure you're getting in, you know, your normal calorie amount, whether that's 2,000 or 3,000 calories per day. Whatever you typically do, just make sure you're eating at least one big meal where you're getting all those calories in because you don't want to end up in nutrient deficiency because that is not going to help the remodeling of the fibroblasts. Some foods that you can go to to remodel that connective tissue, probably the best is bone broth. You're leaching out everything that contains fibroblasts, essentially. You're getting minerals out of the bones, calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, all those things, right? But you're also breaking down that connective tissue, all those condyles, all that what we would call gristle on the ends of bones, right? All the connective tissue, the cartilage, the ligaments, the tendon. You're getting all of those nutrients into that bone broth, and then you're drinking that. And that's going to repair probably the best out of any other food. Some other foods to go to would be liver and colostrum, and you could do a straight collagen if you wanted. And you could even do things like elk antler that have growth hormone in it that will start to rebuild that tissue a little more rapidly and a, more, a little more readily than 
you would normally be getting in your diet. So those are great foods to kind of implement if you're trying to repair connective tissue or musculature for that matter. The trick is don't just do it for a few weeks. Do it for six months. Do it for that 180 days when you're getting full cellular turnover of the connective tissue. That's going to be key because you want to keep the stuff built up and it needs energy as it's turning over. It needs very honed, specific, nutrient-dense energy to turn over properly. And if it's damaged, it's going to need even more. You see what I'm getting at? Are you following me? So keep it up. Six months. Get on that diet for six months if you're needing to do repair. Especially after surgeries, if you've had a rotator cuff surgery or ACL replacement or you needed a bicep tendon reattached, great diet to be on. The only diet you should be on, honestly. You, you need and stay on it for the first six months, maybe more, but at least the first six months because that'll give you a full cycle turnover of those cells and you're going to have ample nutrients so they can draw from as much reserve as you possibly need. And if you're somebody who's super active and working out a ton, then you need to be incorporating those foods regularly into your diet every single day, or at least on a weekly basis. Be getting it at some juncture in your diet all of the time, because your body needs a ton of repair, because you're damaging it. And that's a lot of times where sports nutrition kind of wavers, in my opinion, because they'll talk about macronutrients, you know, especially carbohydrates, right? There's a big debate in, you know, sports nutrition and nutrition in general, whether carbohydrate refeeding is really beneficial. If you're sitting in in a lecture class, carbohydrate refeeding is going to be the doctrine that they pull from, you know. One thing about being in ketoacidosis and eating a diet where you're intermittent fasting and not calorie restricting is that your insulin sensitivity skyrockets, meaning your body is then able to take on carbohydrate because you fasted and your insulin sensitivity is very strong at the end of a 12 to 16 hour fast. And so your body can break down carbs very easily in that time frame and in, in that window. So you can definitely do a refeed with carbohydrates and you may need it because glycogen stores will drop a bit in, when you're in a ketoacidosis state. But you don't need to be doing it probably every single day. This is, you need to know and understand what tissue is being damaged. You need to know and understand the difference between sore musculature or fascia that is torn and then turned itself into essentially concrete to where you can't have full range of motion and you're restricted in a particular movement. Very different tissue and they need different nutrients or at least a different duration of nutrients coming in for repair and remodel. One easy way to tell if you have fascia restriction is if, like I said, there is a major lack of movement and lack of range of motion in a particular area, or if you can feel the area and you kind of rub your fingers across the muscle, if it feels extremely ropey and very, very tight, almost like a guitar string, then 
you'll know that there's a lot of fascia restriction internally inside the muscle with that deep fascia layer. And you can break that stuff down. If your fascia stretching, it's a very long stretch, a very prolonged light stretch to where you barely feeling your muscles engage in a stretch, but then you sit and you hold, let's say, a hamstring stretch for 20 minutes per leg. That starts to really slowly unwind the fascia layer because, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, it doesn't respond very quickly. It responds and it's connected with every system, but it's a slow mover. That's why remodeling takes so long. It takes six months for cellular turnover because it doesn't have a huge blood supply. They used to think that fascia had zero blood supply, but that turned out to be false. There is blood supply in the deep fascia layers, especially around your organs, which supply nutrients to it. And eventually that filters up into that dense superficial fascia that's right underneath your skin. And if that process gets restricted or impeded, if your fascia doesn't have as much nutrients, then it'll stiffen up and you'll lose what's called hyaluronic acid or HA. And so I think I've talked a little bit about hyaluronic acid before on this podcast, but it needs to be repeated here. Hyaluronic acid is kind of the buffer in between the skin and the fascia layer. It's this bubbly hydration layer that keeps the fascia in the skin. It keeps a barrier between the two, essentially. And it, that's how the skin and the fascia interact and how collagen gets moved back and forth between those membranes of fascia and skin. And if that hyaluronic acid gets depleted, then the fascia will dry up and it'll shrink up and get tight, kind of like a rawhide bone or something. And that's when things start to tear. So foods that contain hyaluronic acid, again, very important, which is why bone broth and liver and collagen are so good because they contain a lot of hyaluronic acid. If you've, if you've ever done any slaughtering or butchering of any animals, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Once you skin an animal, there's this bubbly hyaluronic acid that comes up and bubbles. The fascia will bubble up, quite literally, it will bubble up. And it's that also has to do with kind of gases that are being released too. But a lot of that is hyaluronic acid bubbling out of the musculature into the fascia and then out of the fascia. And so that is a very, very crucial kind of mechanism, physiological mechanism that your fascia needs to stay healthy and hydrated. When you're rehabbing a fascia tear or frozen shoulder or bicep tendon tear, something like that, you've got to make sure that the skeleton is in good alignment. Because if you're out of alignment, if a joint is displaced or if let's say the head of the humerus in your shoulder is rotated then it's going to be creating a false load through the fascia and through the musculature and your body's going to have to compensate for that and restructure itself on a cellular level to compensate for it and that's not going to induce a healing mechanism okay so you've when you're correcting this stuff you've got to start at the structural level. You have to start with the skeleton and make sure it's in alignment. You've got to make sure the rib cage is in alignment. 
when you're dealing with a shoulder impingement issue. If it's not, then your shoulders, you're never going to get free movement. If you've ever popped a rib out of place in your mid-thoracic spine, you'll know that you can't get your arm above your head because you don't have free movement in the rib cage so you can elevate your arm above your head. Your ribs aren't sliding well through your body when you're doing that type of movement. And so if you're somebody listening to this that needs fascial correction, you've got to find somebody who knows how to start at a structural level and then work through layers. Because it, it's not just, again, it's not just about the fascia. You have the skeleton involved. You have the musculature involved. You have blood supply involved. You have the nervous system involved. And then everything else that goes with it. And that'll change what's flowing through that whole area. Does that make sense? So really start with the structure and then move out. If you're looking to do corrective work. And then make sure you're getting good supplied nutrition to that area. Because if you do all that work and you're getting inadequate nutrition for repair, for cellular turnover, then it's not going to heal well. And you'll, it's going to heal really, really slow. Then instead of six months where you could have been drawing off good nutrition reserves, you would have drawed off half-ass reserves and you're looking at another six months. So then you're 12 months out. 24 months out, 48 months out, and things just aren't getting much better. And a lot of times people will plateau. You'll hear that a lot. Oh, my shoulder's, you know, 80% better, but it just doesn't seem to get better. Well, that's when you know diet needs to come in to finish it because body work is only going to get you so far, right? You can do, you can get everything opened up. You can resupply good blood flow. You can get things structurally realigned. And everything can look good, but, you know, it won't get you 100% there because there's still more to be done. And that's really, really, really important to keep in mind when you're trying to do any type of corrective body work. So just to kind of summarize here, my protocol for this really would be intermittent fasting without calorie restriction making sure you're getting ample amount of bone broth. I would suggest at least a quart or maybe more a day if you're dealing with chronic fascial issues and impingement. Other foods would be liver, collagen, colostrum, or elk antler that you could supply into your diet for at least those six months when you're getting initial repair. and then. Stay moving because the worst thing you can do is just become super sedentary because things will set in. You've got to maintain as much blood flow through that particular area as possible, whether that's some type of myofascial stretching or just some type of light movement where you're not tearing and re-injuring the area. You've got to do that. You've got to stay moving. That's probably one of the number one misconceptions that people have, especially when it comes to something like a frozen shoulder. They just won't use it after a while. And if you do that, if you stop using it, then it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. If you need something replaced, like a hip or a knee or a shoulder, and you're going into surgery, make sure you get that fascia layer as 
loose as humanly possible before you go into surgery, before you get cut on, because that's going to make that healing process go so much better after you get cut on. I mean, if you just think about that for a second, if you go into a surgery all bound up and tight where you have limited blood flow and the nervous system is kind of shut down and things haven't been working for years and somebody cuts into that whole mess, then your rehab for that is going to be so, so bad. And you're going to be lucky if you get a good physical therapist that takes you through and does manual release techniques to get all this stuff sorted out. Most likely, you're going to get a pamphlet and a list of exercises, and you're going to go to PT for six weeks and do a little bit, and that'll be the end of it. That's the story that happens here and that unfolds the majority of the time. So rehab before you go into surgery and then rehab after because it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to heal. And as you're healing, make sure that you're getting good nutrition with those foods for at least six months. And I promise you, it'll be way better than if you were just to do nothing and take some, you know, Vicodin and muscle relaxers and then, you know, go get a rotator cuff surgery. You're not going to heal up well. And that's the other thing. You want to talk about pain pills? It blocks pain receptors, which impedes the healing process. So you're going to have to go through it if you really want to fix it. I mean, most people don't. Most people just kind of stop using a lot of their shoulders because things hurt and they're not repaired well, whether it's from a surgery or from a lack of surgery. So it's it's really anytime you go in for any type of surgery where you need to cut through musculature and fascia, it's always smart to get those three systems, really, the skeleton, the muscle, and the fascia layers released up and in alignment before a surgeon goes in with a scalpel and starts cutting things up because it's going to be so, so impacted with scar tissue from the surgery, but also just chronically. And that's where you get into trouble. Another really fascinating thing about the whole fascia system at large is if you look what are called fascia lines or fascia planes. They follow traditional Chinese meridians almost 100%, meaning meridians could be essentially transferred over to those fascia lines or planes that run through your body from your brain to your feet because they're connected lines that, again, that run through from your brain, through your organs, to your feet. They coincide with every single system. And fascia actually carries its own independent electrical signal from the nervous system, meaning it's kind of an unordered electrical signal that your fascia system can carry. And that's how it actually interacts with hormones, with your musculature, with your nervous system, with any other system that it needs to interact with. It carries this kind of scattered electrical chemical messaging on it and in it. So it's a very, very complex system that's still currently being worked out. A good example of the way the fascia responds to stimulation independent of the nervous system is when somebody's in a coma. The reflexes actually go backwards. So reflexes typically, they move up the body. Like if you were to stimulate a foot or a knee, right? You get a 
reflex jerk in the knee, it moves up. In a coma, it would move down. And that's because it's the fascia responding, not the nervous system. So fascia response, it's a reflexive response down instead of up. I mean, there's a lot of things that are still being discussed and worked out when it comes to this whole system that glues all your body together and interacts with every other system. But it's very, very important and one that needs to be talked about a lot more, in my opinion. But this is where all the research is leading and it's becoming more and more evident as more and more people start to actually study this tissue that was once thought just to be this kind of dead, almost meaningless tissue that just kind of lumped things together. You can almost think of it as your fascia controlling the way your body moves instead of your muscles controlling the way your body moves. That would honestly be a more accurate depiction of how you're able to move and why you're able to move in the way that you're able to move. It's because of the fascia system, not because of your musculature. So it's very, very important that you keep things healthy and that you even really know what it is because you may think it's a torn muscle when it has nothing to do with your musculature at all. Your muscles probably are fine. Again, muscles don't tear that easily. Muscles are flexible. That's why you can flex your muscles. It's the connective tissue. It's the fascia that tears. It's very rare that you actually tear the belly of a muscle. And if you do, the repair is pretty quick. I mean, within 90 days, you have full turnover, and it'll feel a lot better before 90 days. Another good diagnostic tool. If you feel like maybe you strained a muscle, and it's not feeling better within a week or two, you'll know you'll, you're starting to get some pretty good fascia impaction in there, and you'll want to get some fascia-specific work done on that area to get things to properly heal. And you don't want to wait that long. The quicker you can get in to do this type of thing, the better. Because again, it won't have the time to kind of solidify and build up scar tissue and, and have an effect on the nervous system and hormone production, things of that nature. You know, a lot of times it feels kind of like concrete. It's like things just set in. So paying attention to the difference between fascia tightness and muscular tightness is very, very important. I mean, that's step number one. You need to understand the difference between the tissue. And once you do that, you can go about changing your nutrition to reflect what your body needs to actually heal. All right. So I think this is going to kind of wrap it up for this week. Thanks again for listening to another episode. And stay well, stay healthy. I'll talk to you guys again next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. 